Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I talk to real world practitioners of serverless and get the stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by two guests, Nick and Steve from Totally Money. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi, Ian. Hello. And good to see you guys again. And uh, we worked together for a while at Totally Money. And for the audience who are not familiar with what you guys do, do you want to spend a few minutes and tell us what is Totally Money? What do you guys do there? Sure, uh, I can do that. Hi, I'm Steve. I'm an engineering manager here. Um, so that means that I think about our team, uh, who's on that team, but also I'm down in the trenches making code as well. Both Nick and me work at Totally Money and Totally Money is a provider of free credit scores. You can sign up, you can find out about your credit scores, find out about factors that affect your credit scores and generally help to improve your financial situation by um, knowing a bit more about it. My name is Nick. I'm the head of technology at Totally Money. Uh, so I spend some of my time thinking about the tools and the platforms that, that we use to deliver our products. Great. And uh, how are you guys using serverless uh, at uh, Totally Money? So we um, are heavily bought into AWS. That's our cloud platform provider. And serverless was something that sounded quite interesting as uh, the initial interest was having on-demand services that didn't need to be alive and that you didn't need to kind of have a more expanded provisioning framework for that interested us and the possibility of not worrying about infrastructure so much and also a bit more developers as DevOps. That kind of change was also something that interested us. don't know if you want to add anything, Nick. From my perspective, we're also a growing business. We're busy hiring engineers and investing in new verticals and expanding the range of things that you as a customer, you, the value you can get from Totally Money. So that, that translates into technology and, and software that's built uh, in a distributed way. So we have lots of different teams because we have lots of engineers and those engineers to be productive and to enjoy what they do, they're, they're, you know, we're trying to build microservices that talk to each other and that, are, that kind of can communicate across our ecosystem. And that works well with Lambda because Lambda is, and, and kind of functions as a service is kind of inherently isolated and inherently distributed. That fits nicely with us. And we, and we kind of use the AWS services like SNS and SQS quite heavily to wire up those systems and you know, allow us to be productive. Okay. And uh, you said you've got lots of engineers and lots of different teams. Are we talking about hundreds of engineers? Are we talking about maybe you know, 40, 50 engineers? What's your current tech stack and where do you kind of move from? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start off with this. Um, so I think traditionally our tech stack is probably more along the lines of .NET applications, so APIs and various services written in .NET. Our team here, uh, it's not a massive team. We've got probably about 30 developers now. Uh, that's been growing steadily, probably be 40 by the end of this year. We started out with C Sharp, that sort of .NET tech stack. We've got some F Sharp in there, some functional stuff that Nick's very interested in. And equally, we've kind of moved probably away from the paradigm of having .NET microservices to sort of functions as a service allows you to just kind of use whatever you fancy on that day, really. Um, but we're, you know, we do a lot of stuff with JavaScript and TypeScript. So yeah, that's that's kind of where we are at the moment. 
we were traditionally coming from a place with more of a monolithic three-tier enterprise application and that you know that involved running our own ec2 machines using rds and other aws services but without the kind of promise of scale and and without the ability to really scale the team very well as we kind of slowly started to break up the application and we started to use varying technologies as well using react on the front end uh, leveraging that to build better responsive and more modern web products uh, and on the back end, we've kind of innovated more along the lines of integrations and, and being able to communicate with third parties. And that's where, uh, well, that's where we started to introduce Lambda as an easy way to spin up new services and integrate with third parties in a, in a kind of offline, async, non-customer facing way. That's where we kind of saw the least amount of risk to begin with. Uh, but today, increasingly, we're we're also using it to build and, and serve our front-end applications and, and customer-facing parts of the stack because of the promises of things like scale and reliability and simply yeah, just a way that has much lower friction than traditional deployment methods and, and things that we've been used to. Okay, so you've got quite a big uh, transition in terms of the technology stack, in terms of the languages you're using, but also the services that you're using to run your application from EC2 and containers to now Lambda. What are some of the pain points that you experience along this transition? Um, well, we've, we've just finished a, a project that is entirely a, a serverless project. We're now offering at Totally Money the ability to switch your energy provider like a service to a customer. That for us, the kind of back end, the plumbing of that is done all in serverless. And it's been really great, been so much more rapid being able to, to add new endpoints and uh, integrate with API gateway, etc. It's been so good that as it's grown, we've uh, we've actually come up against the problem of CloudFormation only allowing 200 resources per stack. We're butting up against that at the moment and trying to figure out how to architect it going forward. So when you say things are more rapid, I guess you're talking about uh, the whole sort of development cycle. Um, do you have some sort of rough sense in terms of uh, where you were before and uh, where you are today? You know, I can only really be anecdotal about that type of thing. It's not the type of thing we particularly measure here, but um, it does feel like it's a bit more responsive in terms of spinning up a stack is kind of like one line in your terminal and and. The ability to have a project contained like that is very powerful. The ability to update quite easily and immediately roll out things just means that your feedback loop is a lot shorter. We've just found it particularly easy to add new resources like you want a S3 bucket, no problem. You want a, uh, a new topic on SNS. It's all easily configurable and rapid to deploy. Yeah, so one of the things that I keep hearing from people is that there's no easy way to do local development. And I guess if you're coming from .NET, you're also quite used to that kind of local feedback where you run your code in a, in a container or inside your IDE and you can debug the code. Have you found similar challenges as you move from your more traditional stack to now running on serverless using Node and uh, TypeScript instead of .NET on the container? Uh, yes, uh, I think, you know, initially that was something that just a different way of working for a developer. Weirdly, I don't think it's so much of a problem now. We're just kind of used to when we develop something at the micro level, we just make sure that it's like thoroughly tested 
and then because of the ability to rapidly prototype and put up uh, new stacks. So effectively, the kind of old chugging uh, project down the line from like a dev stack to a UAT stack and all that sort of stuff, it's a lot more fluid now. So we get the feedback loop on that is a lot faster, but local development paradigm of like having, I don't know, like a Visual Studio running your .NET application, you know, that has kind of that immediacy, I guess, is gone. And it's sort of replaced with something a bit more thoughtful, more based upon testing. Because obviously we have tried running uh, our Lambda functions locally. We like used a local stack and, and, and stuff like that. But I think in, in a certain sense, it's just sort of just easier to push the whole thing up and then see how it is. And that's how we've been developing. And actually now that's kind of like the new norm. So pushing stuff to the AWS and then testing it there rather than trying to use local stack to simulate everything. You said what you mean? That's exactly right. Yeah. So we tried experimenting with local stack, tried uh, to get a sort of local development thing going. But ultimately, we found that, that was no longer really necessary when we're developing new features. We just get the feature and think about how to do it, write it, test it, push it up and see how it works. And in terms of how you write tests, has that also changed as well with the way now you're doing development with more focus on, I guess, testing the real thing once it's been deployed? Um, Yeah, it has. I mean, um, like functionality-wise, I think unit testing is is kind of how you prove that your business logic works. That's, That's fine. There was kind of a bit of research about how, like in this particular project, like how we actually go about doing something a bit more end-to-end or integration test. And uh, what we found was that actually our our CI pipeline now just spins up a, a test stack and we run our integration tests against that stack and make sure they're all fine before we deploy to our pre-production environment. Right, so that's a temporary stack that you spin up just for the purpose of running tests as part of your CI/CD pipeline, right? That's exactly right. And again, it's just that flexibility of sort of single line spinning up a, a new stack as you need it is fantastic. Yeah, that's really cool. It's definitely a pattern that I'm seeing people employ more and more, I guess, because like you said, it's that flexibility is really easy to do it. And you don't have to worry about taking care of all these test data that you end up having in your staging or your shared environment. Another question I have in terms of some of the platform limits you run into, you mentioned that you run into the 200 resources limit for one CloudFormation stack. What about any other limits that you have run into as you're working with a serverless and AWS more and more on a day-to-day basis? I think the, the only one that comes to mind is, I think, the number of invocation limit that you get with Lambda. Uh, as, a, as a kind of an account-wide thing. I think we, we haven't approached that limit, but that's something that we're keeping an eye on and that, so that we know we can ask AWS to increase for us if need be. But I think we'd rather let that be a reason why we favor having more granularity in terms of accounts in the scenario where we do need more of a kind of bursty uh, and a kind of a larger overhead in terms of lambda invocations, then then we kind of we know exactly why that's needed and, and what's causing it, as opposed to just to kind of just kind of having a knee jerk reaction to to expecting that we're going to reach that limit at some point because it's not it's not a place where you want to kind of be operating near to, and then you're you know, ending up with throttled invocations. 
I think there's other other limits like number of endpoints on a on an API gateway, but that's not 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 something that we kind of practically run into day to day. As I say, we're we're a business that it operates only in the UK. Our customers are all UK based. That lowers the sort of complexity of being globally distributed, of being you know have redundancy and and, and everything else. We we kind of have a, a a lower target to aim for in that sense. So it. We're, we're, as customers of AWS, you know, we're we're not often the ones pushing the boundaries, but we're just kind of benefiting from the the low hanging fruit that people before us have paved the way to to achieve. I'd also add, of course, like when we started off using serverless, there was a lot of angst around cold starts, and for that reason, we didn't really fully invest in customer facing functions. But now, our solution to that was. If you remember, we, we talked about being a kind of .NET house and having lots of expertise in the back end with C Sharp, et cetera. We've kind of transitioned away from that towards more like Node-based and TypeScript-based functions. And actually, there's been quite good buy-in from that from our C Sharp back-end developers. And... Um... One other thing I remember from our time working together was that uh, we were doing a lot of work on the sort of logging infrastructure. And one of the limits that we ran into was the fact that you can only have one subscription filter per log group. And the other day I learned that um, you can actually have more than one, but the only way to do it right now is to raise a support ticket, not a service limit raise, but a normal support ticket. Uh, and asked the AWS, uh, well, specifically the CloudWatch team, to allow more than one subscription filter for the account. So you guys are doing all this transition, and it's definitely a transition that I'm seeing quite a lot of. And uh, what about, uh, are there anything that you think AWS can do better? It could be documentation, maybe some of the services that are just not as easy to work with. Have you guys done much work with uh, Cognito since uh, we last spoke? Um, no, I don't think we've done much more than since since we last spoke. Um, the the couple of things that I had in mind to to deal with the limitations or the or the the things that AWS could could improve upon, well, it is just for further development of products like CDK, the the cloud development kit. That we've done some probing in in that direction, and and it feels like a, a really sensible way to actually describe infrastructure. Using uh, you know kind of like a fully fledged programming language and, and having an actual programmatic control over your infrastructure, treating it like data and being able to kind of operate on it, keeping it in source control exactly you know in, in the same way as as you would with a, a YAML file. But um, it's just a lot better than a YAML file. And, and but the differences at the moment between say the serverless framework or SAM versus CDK is that the community and the the library of plugins around serverless framework is uh, far superior to anything that's in uh, CDK at the moment. So you, you actually lose quite a lot of benefit if by moving directly over to CDK at the moment. So there's, there's going to be a few barriers to towards that adoption. So I would say AWS could uh, just invest in uh, creating uh, something approaching parity with the the wealth of plugins that the serverless framework has versus what CDK has. Um, I guess in addition to what AWS could do better, I think part of what I found to be quite limiting or at least inflexible with with AWS Lambda as a product was the the ability to control the versioning and the deployment artifacts in the sense that there is a concept of versions and aliases within Lambda. However, they don't behave in the way that us as an organization would like them to. You're not able to kind of 
describe your your own version number and nor does kind of aliases work to provide the same ability to kind of to quite clearly describe what version of the lambda is running and and the way that we would like to define the version of what is running on a given lambda at any given moment is by taking a build number from our ci pipeline so an an ci pipeline is part of a, a different system we use circle ci um, that's where how we choose to identify our build artifacts, but there's no way to naturally pull that into Lambda. Um, so we've kind of had to kind of navigate around that problem by just using kind of environment variables and, and having a, an easy way to make it clear what's running and, and to be able to get that into our logs. So for me, that would be um, something that, that AWS could, could improve upon. Additionally, we, uh, we, we didn't have a great experience with provisioned capacity recently. We, we tried it out not long after it was announced uh, a few months ago. And we did that with a with a .NET solution. And we think perhaps that might have been part of the reason why we didn't have a great experience. But we were able to you know, set a, a greater provision capacity for a given Lambda. That had the negative impact of making it immediately more difficult to understand which Lambda was the one that was provisioned that had the capacity. Like it was difficult to intuit from the UI and to navigate the UI to, to understand which Lambda is being invoked and, and how you could see its logs. Furthermore, it didn't actually solve the problem. It, it, didn't, it didn't reduce cold starts. We still found that even in, in a production-like load testing that it really wasn't reducing the cold start time of a, of a .NET Lambda. So we, we struggled to see the benefit of it and perhaps it's, it's just very early days but we're, and we're willing to give it more time, but that's been a, a challenge for us recently. So I think that's probably a case of uh, bad documentation, or at least the user guides are maybe not as clear because uh, the cold starts in terms of initialization time still happens and they are still reported in the logs, but they happen ahead of time. So even though you still see those being reported in the x-ray trace as well as in your logs, but they're actually not going to be on a user-facing path. So if you look at the actual end-to-end response time for, say, API function, then you won't see those cold starts if the provision concurrency has been created. Because when you add provision concurrency, it gets added to a particular version, not the latest alias. If you are deploying with the server framework, every deployment is going to create a new version, and you have to have something that shifts the provision concurrency to that latest version. And you can't allocate provision concurrency onto the latest alias. This is probably where you are seeing some of this confusion as to why is it not working whether or not you're actually using provision concurrency or the on-demand concurrency, that's something you can see in the metrics for the particular version or alias that you are using. As for the alias, um, if you want to get your build version number into your logs, then the only way kind of to do it right now is to do that through environment variables. Even if you have them as your alias, there's no easy way for you to at runtime figure out what that alias is. I mean, you could create alias with any arbitrary names. I get your point that you know, version numbers, we're all used to it being semantic versioning. Those version numbers should follow the semantic version structure. But with Lambda, with layers, they all just follow the so one, two, three, four, five. So that's not particularly useful. And the idea is to use aliases. And if you want to have semantic versioning, then you have to put that in your alias name instead. 
for the provision concurrency stuff, I do think there's quite a few things that need to iron out from the, the developer experience side of things so that it's less confusing. And I do think right now it is quite confusing. Also, I don't think it's intended for everybody to use. But if you're running .NET, then I do think you guys should be able to take advantage of that and use existing .NET code and not have to worry about some of the code style that comes with running .NET. So maybe that's something we can take offline and talk more about in detail. And maybe I can give you a hand trying to figure out what's going on when you were running with provision concurrency. And also with provision concurrency, if you've got a spike in traffic, you can still get to the point where there's just not enough provision concurrency so that you end up using on-demand concurrency, at which point you're going to see cold start again. Yeah, understood. I think I think our, our, our measurements weren't necessarily just from the... Uh, 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 the measurements of, of the start time uh, weren't exclusively from the AWS CloudWatch logs. It was actually external monitoring using you know ex external systems to to measure the full latency of a request that should have been served by provision capacity. Reasonably sure that that it's not just a, a problem of reporting, but uh, yeah, I'd be happy to take that offline and look at it in more detail with you. So in that case, did you have uh, API Gateway pointing to the right alias? We we believe we we did all that correctly. We're, we're using uh, serverless the, the recent updates to the serverless framework that to support provisioned capacity, and we still were able to get you know, the valid responses. And in the system worked and behaved as ex as expected in terms of input and output. It was it was just simply a problem of latency that we still experience. You have to. There's a couple of things that you have to make sure. Uh, I would say when you do that, probably best to check in the console to make sure the configuration is exactly as you expect uh, because as by default the server framework doesn't configure the API gateway endpoint to talk to anything other than the latest alias and you can't stick a provision concurrency against the latest alias and also after you deploy even though you've, you know the process has finished the provision concurrency itself can take a few minutes just to get provisioned so that if you test right away they're not going to be hitting the uh, provision concurrency but yeah, let's uh, maybe let's take this uh, offline and uh, we can talk more, uh, more about it afterwards. So I guess we're coming up to the half an hour mark. And uh, I, I just want to take the time to thank you guys uh, very much for joining me today. And uh, if you've got anything else uh, you want to tell the listeners about Total Money, maybe you guys are hiring, you know, what sort of roles you're looking for right now? Yeah, um, so we are hiring. We're going to try and add a bunch more developers to our development team. So if you're listening and you like the sound of that, then uh, just get in contact. We're in London. We're really cool to work for. Come and work for us. Uh, in 2019, we were voted number 52 in the rankings of small to medium enterprises to work for by the Sunday Times. Um, and yeah, we look for front-end roles and back-end roles in our, in our engineering team. And you guys are still based near Old Street, right? That's right, near the Magic Roundabout. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so you heard the guys, uh, if you know, if you're looking for something interesting and you're looking for a fully serverless company, then uh, check these guys out. Thank you guys again very much and I'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Thanks, Sean. Cheers. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. Thank you guys again for joining us. To find the show notes and the transcript for this episode, please go to realworldserverless.com. I'll see you guys next time.